Section 13 of The Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. Letitia Pilkington. Let us bother the librarian once again. Let us ask him to reach down, dust, and hand over to us that little brown book over there, The Memoirs of Mrs. Pilkington, three volumes bound in one, printed by Peter Hoey in Dublin, 1776. The deepest obscurity shades her retreat. The dust lies heavy on her tomb. One board is loose, that is to say, and nobody has read her since early in the last century when a reader, presumably a lady, whether disgusted by her obscenity or stricken by the hand of death, left off in the middle and marked her place with a faded list of goods and groceries. If ever a woman wanted a champion, it is obviously Letitia Pilkington. Who then was she? Can you imagine a very extraordinary cross between Moll Flanders and Lady Ritchie, between a rolling and rollicking woman of the town and a lady of breeding and refinement? Letitia Pilkington, 1712 to 1759, was something of the sort, shady, shifty, adventurous, and yet like Thackeray's daughter, like Miss Mitford, like Madame de Sévigné and Jane Austen and Maria Edgeworth, so imbued with the old traditions of her sex that she wrote, as ladies talk, to give pleasure. Throughout her memoirs, we can never forget that it is her wish to entertain, her unhappy fate to sob. Dabbing her eyes and controlling her anguish, she begs us to forgive an odious breach of manners, which only the suffering of a lifetime, the intolerable persecutions of Mr. P. N., the malignant, she must say the H. H., spite of Lady C. T., can excuse. For who should know better than the Earl of Kilmallock's great-granddaughter that it is the part of a lady to hide her sufferings? Thus Letitia is in the great tradition of English women of letters. It is her duty to entertain. It is her instinct to conceal. Still, though her room near the Royal Exchange is threadbare, and the table is spread with old playbills instead of a cloth, and the butter is served in a shoe, and Mr. Worsdale has used the teapot, to fetch small beer that very morning. Still she presides, still she entertains. Her language is a trifle coarse, perhaps. But who taught her English? The great Dr. Swift. In all her wanderings, which were many, and in her failings, which were great, she looked back to those early Irish days when Swift had pinched her into propriety of speech. He had beaten her for fumbling at a drawer, he had daubed her cheeks with burnt cork to try her temper. He had bade her pull off her shoes and stockings and stand against the wainscot and let him measure her. At first she had refused. Then she had yielded. Why, said the dean, I suspected you had either broken stockings or foul toes, and in either case should have delighted to expose you. Three feet two inches was all she measured, he declared, though, as Letitia complained, the weight of Swift's hand on her head had made her shrink to half her size. But she was foolish to complain. Probably she owed her intimacy to that very fact. 
she was only three feet two. Swift had lived a lifetime among the giants. Now there was a charm in dwarfs. He took the little creature into his library. Well, said he, I have brought you here to show you all the money I got when I was in the ministry, but don't steal any of it. I won't indeed, sir, said I. So he opened a cabinet and showed me a whole parcel of empty drawers. Bless me, says he, the money is flown. There was a charm in her surprise. There was a charm in her humility. He could beat her and bully her, make her shout when he was deaf, force her husband to drink the lees of the wine, pay their cab fares, stuff guineas into a piece of gingerbread, and relent surprisingly, as if there were something grimly pleasing to him in the thought of so foolish a midget setting up to have a life and a mind of her own. For, with Swift, she was herself. It was the effect of his genius. She had to pull off her stockings if he told her to. So, though his satire terrified her, and she found it highly unpleasant to dine at the deanery and see him watching, in the great glass which hung before him for that purpose, the butler stealing beer at the sideboard, she knew that it was a privilege to walk with him in his garden, to hear him talk of Mr. Pope and quote Hudibras, and then be hustled back in the rain to save coach hire, and then to sit chatting in the parlour with Mrs. Brent, the housekeeper, about the dean's oddity and charity, and how the sixpence he saved on the coach he gave to the lame old man who sold gingerbread at the corner, while the dean dashed up the front steps and down the back so violently that she was afraid he would fall and hurt himself. But memories of great men are no infallible specific. They fall upon the race of life like beams from a lighthouse. They flash, they shock, they reveal, they vanish. To remember Swift was of little avail to Letitia when the troubles of life came thick about her. Mr. Pilkington left her for widow Warren. Her father, her dear father, died. The sheriff's officers insulted her. She was deserted in an empty house with two children to provide for. The tea chest was secured, the garden gate locked, and the bills left unpaid. And still she was young and attractive and gay, with an inordinate passion for scribbling verses and an incredible hunger for reading books. It was this that was her undoing. The book was fascinating, and the hour late. The gentleman would not lend it, but would stay till she had finished. They sat in her bedroom. It was highly indiscreet, she owned. Suddenly, twelve watchmen broke through the kitchen window, and Mr. Pilkington appeared with a cambric handkerchief tied about his neck. Swords were drawn and heads broken. As for her excuse, how could one expect Mr. Pilkington and the twelve watchmen to believe that? Only reading? Only sitting up late to finish a new book? Mr. Pilkington and the watchmen interpreted the situation as such men would. But lovers of learning, she is persuaded, will understand her passion and deplore its consequences. And now what was she to do? Reading had played her false, but still she could write. Ever since she could form her letters, indeed, she had written, with incredible speed and considerable grace, odes, addresses, apostrophes to Miss Hoadley, to the recorder of Dublin, to Dr. Delville's place in the country. Hey, 
hail, happy Delville, blissful seat. Is there a man whose fixed and steady gaze, blank? The verses flowed without the slightest difficulty on the slightest occasion. Now, therefore, crossing to England, she set up, as her advertisement had it, to write letters upon any subject, except the law, for twelve pence ready money and no trust given. She lodged opposite White's Chocolate House, and there, in the evening, as she watered her flowers on the leads, the noble gentleman in the window across the road drank her health, sent her over a bottle of burgundy, and later she heard old Colonel crying, Poke after me, my lord, poke after me, as he shepherded the D-blank of Marlborough up her dark stairs. That lovely gentleman, who honoured his title by wearing it, kissed her, complimented her, opened his pocket-book, and left her with a banknote for fifty pounds upon Sir Francis Child. Such tributes stimulated her pen to astonishing outbursts of impromptu gratitude. If, on the other hand, a gentleman refused to buy, or a lady hinted impropriety, this same flowery pen writhed and twisted in agonies of hate and vituperation. Had I said that your father died blaspheming the Almighty, one of her accusations begins, but the end is unprintable. Great ladies were accused of every depravity, and the clergy, unless their taste in poetry was above reproach, suffered an incessant castigation. Mr. Pilkington, she never forgot, was a clergyman. Slowly but surely, the Earl of Kilmallock's great-granddaughter descended in the social scale. From St. James's Street and its noble benefactors, she migrated to Green Street to lodge with Lord Stair's valet de chambre and his wife, who washed for persons of distinction. She, who had dallied with dukes, was glad for company's sake to take a hand at quadrille with footmen and laundresses and Grub Street writers, who, as they drank porter, sipped green tea and smoked tobacco, told stories of the utmost scurrility about their masters and mistresses. The spiciness of their conversation made amends for the vulgarity of their manners. From them, Letitia picked up those anecdotes of the great, which sprinkled her pages with dashes and served her purpose when subscribers failed and landladies grew insolent. Indeed, it was a hard life to trudge to Chelsea in the snow wearing nothing but a chintz gown and be put off with a beggarly half-crown by Sir Hans Sloane next to tramp to Ormond Street and extract two guineas from the odious Dr. Mead, which, in her glee, she tossed in the air and lost in a crack of the floor. To be insulted by footmen, to sit down to a dish of boiling water because her landlady must not guess that a pinch of tea was beyond her means. Twice on moonlight nights, with the lime trees in flower, she wandered in St. James's Park, and contemplated suicide in Rosamond's Pond. Once, musing among the tombs in Westminster Abbey, the door was locked on her, and she had to spend the night in the pulpit, wrapped in a carpet from the communion table, to protect herself from the assaults of rats. "'I long to listen to the young-eyed cherubims,' she exclaimed. But a very different fate was in store for her. In spite of Mr. Colley Sibber and Mr. Richardson, who supplied her first with gilt-edged notepaper and then with baby linen, 
Those harpies, her landladies, after drinking her ale, devouring her lobsters, and failing often for years at a time to comb their hair, succeeded in driving Swift's friend and the Earl's great-granddaughter to be imprisoned with common debtors in the Marshalsea. Bitterly she cursed her husband, who had made her a lady of adventure, instead of what nature intended, a harmless household dove. More and more wildly she ransacked her brains for anecdotes, memories, scandals, views about the bottomless nature of the sea, the inflammable character of the earth, anything that would fill a page and earn her a guinea. She remembered that she had eaten plover's eggs with Swift. "'Here, hussy,' said he, "'is a plover's egg. King William used to give crowns apiece for them.' Swift never laughed, she remembered. He used to suck in his cheeks instead of laughing. And what else could she remember? A great many gentlemen, a great many landladies, how the window was thrown up when her father died, and her sister came downstairs with the sugar basin, laughing. All had been bitterness in struggle, except that she had loved Shakespeare, known Swift, and kept through all the shifts and shades of an adventurous career a gay spirit, something of a lady's breeding, and the gallantry which at the end of her short life led her to crack her joke and enjoy her duck with death at her heart and duns at her pillow. End of section 13